Well, it's certainly great to have Jerry back. Chris, great to have you back. And we are so grateful for the team who still serves there, and we want to pray for their safe, safe trip back and a quick transition uh, to life here on a different time zone, a different schedule. I thought Jerry only showed a, a modicum of loopiness occasionally when he was uh, up speaking. He tell just enough that he had uh, transcrossed so many time zones, but welcome back. This Father's Day just passed. Marilyn and I were not in the service because I had been asked by a, a neighboring pastor to speak on the subject of parenting. Now, I suppose, presumably, since he was in the service, uh, he's married, but he's not yet a parent. And I have four children and ten grandchildren, so I think he was working on the somewhat faulty presumption that I might have something uh, more authoritative to say on parenting. The truth be told, I uh, identify with the venerable Charlie Shedd, who once wrote that he knew a whole lot more about parenting before he became one. In fact, he had this uh, this um, story that he often told that uh, when he was young, married, no kids, he had this uh, talk on parenting that he gave over and over again and polished it and gave it to great crowds. And the title of the talk was Surefire Ways to Rear Great Children. Then he had one. And then he had two. And I think probably somewhere about age two of that first child, he revamped his talk a little bit and gave it a different title. It went from surefire ways to raise great children to uh, simple suggestions to rear satisfactory kids. <clears throat> and then those children mutated into teenagers and he totally scratched his sermon, came up with a new one, and the title was Feeble Hints for Fellow Strugglers. <laughs> now, having had four children who did mutate into teenagers and morphed into parents of children themselves, I really would like to address the subject of parenting this morning from that context, which means I'm going to give you a whole lot of scripture. Because I've learned that there is wisdom and authority of the scriptures that we do not contain on our own. Uh, so what I would encourage you to do, they'll be flashed up on the screen, hopefully. Uh, but jot the, the citation down and look it up and reflect on it this week. Now, that's whether you are currently a parent of little ones, teenagers, or you've got adult children, or you don't have children of your own. But you can bless the children who run the halls of our church and in other relational arenas of your lives. Jot down the scriptures and reflect on them later at your leisure would be my my suggestion for you. Our focal passage is going to be Deuteronomy chapter six, but we're not going to go there yet. You might have that ready since we will reflect on it throughout the message. Um. One thing I do want to say, if you haven't already got it, get it now. Parenting is not a science. It is an art, even when you walk with God and you have an open Bible before you.
And I think that's so because of a couple of things. First of all, uh, God made each of us unique and you just can't prepackage us and formulate anything much about us. Secondly, we are weak, finite, sinful human beings. That would be parents and children. And thirdly, God is just as interested in building our character as he is the characters of our children. And so out of desperation on the firing line of parenting, we tend to understand our need for a close relationship with God. And we cultivate the relationship, and it is in the relationship that we will find wisdom for life in this great challenge of parenting. And there is no greater calling. The potential for pain is high. The potential for impact is also high. But it is one of our highest callings. Now, before we get to our focal passage, which is... um, Deuteronomy, I want to read a familiar parable in the Gospels that is usually not read from the perspective of uh, parenting. And that is Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 24. It is what is commonly called the parable of the prodigal son, though some of you have taken a class with me, which we've looked at uh, the words of uh, Timothy Keller, who says the prodigal in the passage is God. Because the word prodigal literally means to spend lavishly, to spend till you can spend no more. And it is the father who lavishes his love upon the sons. But there is a wayward son. And as a fact, there are two. And so we read the parable in Luke chapter 15. And here is a part of it that Jesus told. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set out for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to the citizen of that country who sent him in his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. No one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. And so he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost 
and he is found. So they began to celebrate. Now, this passage I read because it does have some insights into parenting, and we're going to cycle back to it as we close today. But we can learn from it that the calling of parenthood includes providing for our children a place called home. Home, where the door is always open, an empty chair is always ready. And there is plenty of love, acceptance, and forgiveness to go around. Now, with that in mind, let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is called the Shema from the first word of the passage in Hebrew. Uh, If you have Jewish friends who are practicing their faith, especially Orthodox Jewish friends, you've been to their home. You know, often there will be on the doorpost of their home a miniature facsimile of a Torah scroll. And contained in there will be the words of the passage we will read right now. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. And with all your soul and with all your strength, these commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and of your gates. This solemn instruction given to the Jews in the first of the three farewell addresses of Moses that that, uh, compose the book of Deuteronomy directly addressed the issue of parenting our children. And it says that we parent our children by giving them roots and giving them wings. Now, I don't know where I first heard that phrase. Uh, Marilyn once gave me a book by Chuck Swindoll and Chuck. Swindoll used that phrase. Perhaps that's the first time I became acquainted with it. But it is a great job description of parenting. We are to give our children roots and we are to give them wings. First of all, we are to give them roots. And as Deuteronomy is telling us here, that means that we are to train them for life in such a way as to enable them to let their roots go down deep into the soils of God's wisdom. Now, here is the first of uh, two passages that I want you to jot down that we will read quickly, but you probably won't have time to turn to. Psalm 1, the very first of the 150 Psalms, and Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 5 through 8. These two passages contrast a life of abundance with a life of, of no abundance. The life that has roots... And the life that has no roots. And so what does Psalm 1 say? Some of you could almost quote it. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose life does not wither. Whatever he does prospers, not so the wicked, 
They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Notice the contrast between the life which is located near the streams of living water, whose roots go down deep into the soils of God's love. Now, look at how Jeremiah builds on that theme. This is what the Lord says. Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who depends on flesh for his strength and whose hearts turn away from the Lord. He will be like a bush in the wastelands. He will not see prosperity when it comes. He will dwell in a parched places of the desert, in a salt land where no one lives. But blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. He will be like a tree planted by the streams of water. There's Psalm 1 that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. Now, you see the contrast between the life of abundance and the life of barrenness. It's not the presence of prosperity in the absence of problems. As you look at Jeremiah, you see that into both life drought comes the scorching heat of the sun when there is no rain in sight. And yet even then the life whose roots have gone deep into the soil of God's wisdom that is located near the springs of living water continues to flourish and no abundance. We as parents are called to provide an atmosphere where our children will learn to let their roots go down deep into the soils of God's love. So, first of all, parenting is all about atmosphere. I didn't ask to be born. Have you ever had a teenager? Heard a teenager say that? Have you ever said that when you were a teenager? I remember when I think I used that line on my dad when I'd been particularly obnoxious. And if I remember well, his response was, right. And if you had, the answer would have been no. (laughs) And so I guess it is literally true that children don't ask to be born into the environment in which they find themselves. Generally speaking, almost all the way of time, all the time, kids do not get to choose the environment in which they grow up. We parents are responsible to provide that atmosphere. And wise is the parent who who walks with God with an open Bible and who learns to provide an atmosphere that is centered in the love and the wisdom of God. Deuteronomy tells us as we do that, that along the way, when we sit down, when we stand up in those teachable moments, we are to convey to them the principles and the priorities of wisdom that are found in God's word. But first... The principles and the priorities must be practiced by the parents before they can be discussed or taught. It all comes down to modeling. And children need to see models. And their primary models, for good or bad, are their parents. Now, one of the amazing things to me is that in the single parent household, when that single parent loves God deeply, 
God can become the God of the gaps. He can be a God of great grace who will bless and multiply the impact of a single parent walking with God, doing their best to provide this kind of an atmosphere. We also know that God's model is a man and a woman in marriage under God, building an atmosphere of godliness. And do you know where that begins for us parents? It begins in our relationship with one another. If any of you ever work under the illusion that you can neglect one another in terms of God's pattern for your marriage, but bestow love upon the kids and the impact will be all positive, you need to divest yourself of that illusion. Providing an atmosphere in which your parents can prosper and their roots go down deep in Christ begins as they see your relationship to one another modeled. So what is a biblical relationship between a husband and a wife? Well, Ephesians 5, of course, is succinct, right to the point and fundamental. Ephesians 5:25 says, husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In Ephesians 5.22, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Now that word submission is a fundamental word in all of our relationships as Christ followers because because, uh, Ephesians 5.21 says that in all our relationships, we are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. But a wife is called as a fundamental uh, challenge from God to submit to her husbands. Now, it doesn't say wives obey your husbands. It does say children obey your parents in Ephesians 6, but it says wives submit to your husbands. Now, what does that mean? The word submit literally means loving deference, willingly to honor, to honor, to give your husband the gift of respect. And I think all of us men in the most honest moments of our lives, when we were very transparent about what built us up and what tore us down and what hurts us most deeply, the lack of respect from those we cherish is the most painful thing of all. And so God knows what he's talking about when he says wives as the closest person in emotional proximity to your husband, give him the gift of respect. Now, you may have to do like Jesus here, and that is give him a reputation to live up to. You're not sure he's acted worthy of the respect, but look at how Jesus dealt with human beings. You know, Simon was not a rock when Jesus gave him the title Peter, which means rock. He was saying, I see that in you, Simon, and I'm going to work very hard in the coming three and a half years to build the rock-like qualities in you. And Simon finally, with many faltering steps along the way, rose to the reputation that Jesus gave him. That's what he does for us. He draws near us and calls him to himself, and he sees in us what we are not at this moment in ourselves. And wives, you have that wonderful opportunity with your husband to give him respect, to give him a reputation to live up to. Now, if you think that's hard, look at the husband's job description. Husbands, what are we to do in relationship to our wives? 
We are to love our wives. And many of you know that there are several words for love in the original language of the New Testament. There is eros, physical love. There is philios, which is love among friends. I like you because you are likable. You've been lovable to me, so I'm going to be lovable to you. And then there is agape, which is love like the love of God. It is love that takes the initiative, that risks, that has received nothing in return, but puts it out there. No strings attached. It is sacrificial love as demonstrated ultimately in Christ. Agape is the used in this passage, as far as I know, the only passage on family relationships in the Bible that uses the word agape. And it is given to us, husbands, we are to agape our wives, take the initiative Risk, no strings attached, to shower serving love upon our wives before knowing what the response will be. Now, in a home where husbands agape their wives are on a journey toward doing so, and wives are on a journey of honoring and respecting their husbands, a child who grows up in an atmosphere of love and respect is a blessed child indeed. That is the atmosphere, atmosphere that will locate his life near the streams of living water and his roots can go down deep in God's wisdom and love. Now, secondly, how do we give our children roots? We give them roots by providing them the gift of discipline consistently and lovingly applied. There's an interesting verse in Proverbs, and Proverbs, of course, is a great book to read and heed and to share with your kids. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 6 says this. I evidently gave the wrong. Here's what it really says. Now I'm going to look it up. I got to see if it's hard. This is important because I want you to take it home and read it. I just love PowerPoint <laughs> because I usually mess it up. Okay, well, I did give you the wrong. Now, oh, here it is, 1918. That's really what I meant, Juan, is, is Proverbs 1918. <laughs> My bad. <laughs> hey, you got that down, Proverbs 1918? Discipline your son. For in that there is hope. Do not be a willing party to his death. When I first read that in the King James, I thought it was really saying discipline your child while there's still hope, while they're still around. But the best reading of that passage literally is discipline your child. And in the act of discipline, you give him hope. Withhold discipline. And you become a willing party to his death. There is an example in in the Bible of of a godly person who nevertheless failed to discipline his sons. His name was Eli. Eli was high priest in Israel. And later on, perhaps out of his own failures, he he invested 
deeply in young Samuel and God used him to bless Samuel's life and speak into him. But with his own sons, the Bible says Eli did not restrain his sons. He did not discipline them. And have you ever heard somebody make this statement? That boy will be the death of me. Well, it was literally true with Eli. Eli failed to discipline his sons and his sons grew up unrestrained and and they were notorious around the community for their behavior. And when news came to Eli one day of the last of the nefarious episodes in which they had been involved in, he was so dismayed, he fell back in his chair. His chair fell over, hit his head and he died. His boys literally were the death of him. But long before Eli's sons were the death of Eli, Eli was the death of his sons, for he failed to restrain them. He failed to give them the gift of discipline, consistently and lovingly applied. And their ultimate end of all his boys was humiliating destruction. Now, we live in a culture, my observation in which we parents tend to want our to be friends to our kids and we want them to like us. Nothing wrong with that. But first of all, our calling is to be parents to our kids and to love them enough to give them what they need most, whether they like it or not at this moment in time. They need discipline. Consistently and lovingly displayed and applied. But they need it. And you are the one, parent, to give it. Now, it is loving discipline. Ephesians 6, 4. Let's see if I got this one right. Hey, I did. (laughs) Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Discipline must be consistent and must be lovingly applied. But when we apply it, we give our children roots. They locate their lives near the streams of living water. The roots can go down deep in Christ. Now, along with discipline comes the gift of moral absolutes. This is a gift which we can give our children. Absolute truth and moral realities that are always binding. Now, contrary to our culture, you see, again, this is countercultural. Our culture has lost belief in absolutes, but there are absolutes. Every game has its rules and its winning strategies, including the most important game of all, which is the game of life and the rules for wise living And the winning strategy for wise living is found in the word of God. And you see the commandments of God, which we are to teach our children as we rise up, as we sit down along the way in the home after we have modeled them on our own lives. The commandments of God provide wisdom for life and they are the rails upon which we run Our lives. Let's revisit Proverbs and here two passages for you to jot down and reflect upon once again. First of all, Proverbs three, one through eight. It contains my life verse from college. My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands 
in your heart. For they will prolong your life many years and bring you prosperity. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not unto your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. The commandments of God are true wisdom, and they are the rails upon which we run our lives. Now, let's try Proverbs 2, verses 1 through 8. My son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding. And if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, and if you look for it as if for silver and search for it as if for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He holds victory in store for the upright. He is a shield to those whose walk is blameless, for he guards the course of the just and protects the way of his faithful ones. The commandments of God are wisdom. And they are the rails upon which we run our lives. When God gives a commandment, he's not out to ruin our lives and spoil all our fun. But his commandments are based upon his faithfulness and his love. And we always prosper when we keep his commandments. And when we break one of them, we are broken upon them. We are diminished in our lives. The commandments of God flow out of his love, his faithfulness and his wisdom. And they are the rails upon which we run our lives. So teach your children the absolutes about God. And his moral commandments. You say, well, I don't want to force my Christianity upon my kids. Well, you couldn't if you wanted to, right? And I, we honor that. But do not be neutral about this. Actively influence, teach, and woo your children to the path of wisdom which was found in Jesus Christ. We give our children roots when we give them the gifts of absolutes. And as we give them roots, we are called to give them wings. We do not train our children and stuff their heads full of biblical knowledge so they would be good little boys and girls who are obedient to us all the rest of the days of our lives. We are training them for life, for the day that they will sprout wings and they will fly away. And so blessed indeed is a child whose parents intentionally provide for him or her training and instruction for life. You know, life is a full contact sport. You've probably discovered that by now, haven't you? Some of us have got some bumps and bruises and uh, wounds along the way. And every child must suit up and get in the game someday. And so blessed is the child whose parent intentionally provides for him training for the day he will enter the arena. 
You know, I've got a couple of favorite pictures of uh, me and my boys when they were very, very small. One of them is an old Super 8 movie thing. Some of you never heard of Super 8, have you? And in this Super 8 movie, my older son Evan is about, oh, he's a little, little guy. And I'm out in the backyard and I'm mowing the yard. And Evan is coming along right behind me with his toy lawnmower and he's mowing right with me. And when I hitch up my pants, he hitches up his pants. You know, when I wipe my brow, he wipes his brow. Uh, I'm looking for that, that Super 8 movie to show him and his kids. My other favorite picture is an old faded uh, black and white of my two boys and me when they are very, very small. And we're all in the bathroom with our robes on and we've got shaving cream on our faces. And I've got my safety razor and they've got their toy razors and together we're shaving. Now, they will be very embarrassed, so be sure if, you, if my boys are on your Facebook, let them know you heard about this. And ask them about the picture. You know, parents, the days when our kids were small and they were like little ducklings waddling along behind us, those were our favorite days for most of us. But the time will come when they're to be launched for life. And we really don't look forward to that. I guess teenage years help a little. Yeah. When teenagers start shaping at the bit and acting in weird kinds of ways for, to separate, you almost sometimes wish they would. You'd be glad to grant them the door. But really, when it gets down to us, the, the launching moment is painful for most adults, most parents, and most children also. I'm sure it was for the father. In the parable of Luke 15, I'm sure it was for the heavenly father when his children prepared to leave the garden and they really weren't ready. And he had to come to act in in uh, disciplined and redemptive kinds of ways. But we are training them for life. And so wise indeed is the parent who cultivates an intentional strategy for preparing his children to leave home. So when they're young, it's kind of like that tiny little flower bed you used to have. You know, and it occupies this little spot in the lawn. And maybe you have those little sticks that are miniature picket fence. They're closely surrounding it, and there's, there's very little room for freedom in there. And so it is with a, with, a, with a very, very young child. You, you put fences around them. There's not a lot of room for freedom. There are many rules specifically given and consistently applied. And as they get a little bit older, you move the fences back. There are still fences, but there's more room to run. And then as they get older and older and finally they're older teenagers, there's a pasture there with room to roam. But there are still fences There are still rules consistently applied. And then comes the day when the gate swings open and they are on the open road. And there is still the place called home where the door is always open. An empty chair is waiting and there is love, acceptance and forgiveness to go around. Now, I want to close this morning by discussing one more scripture. And that scripture is Proverbs 22, 6. 
And it says, train a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not turn from it. Have you ever agonized over that verse? Or known someone who did? What does it mean? First of all, there is a sense, the word way there is, is a word that can be in, in, interpreted as God's unique design of every one of his human creations. And each one of us has unique temperaments, personalities, styles, gifts, talents. It's us. I have four children and they are each one very different. Although when they get together, you can tell that they belong to the same family. And this passage may be saying. You discover the unique God given makeup of your child and you encourage them along that path. Don't force them into the mold that you would like for them to be. You know, I grew up, grew up in a home. My, my father was could fix anything. He could make anything. He used to buy these elaborate kits to build these these model ships and things. I don't mean the small ones. I mean the big, massive things. And I would watch him while he put them together, though they were my Christmas present. My dad was just mechanically inclined. I can't fix anything. I can't even put together PowerPoint slides. <laughs> there are things about me that are uniquely me and... My parents seem to have gone with that and encouraged me along the unique design that God had for my life. Do that for your kids. Encourage them to cultivate the style and personality and gifts that God and interests that God has given them, even if it doesn't fulfill your desire to live vicariously a different kind of life through them. But secondly, certainly there is the way of moral instruction. To bring them up, to locate their lives near the streams of living water and their roots to go down deep in Christ. What about the exceptions? Here's what I think about this passage. I believe, first of all, as a general principle, it is true. Godly parents who give godly training to their children tend to produce godly children. Not always by the direct route, so don't take your readings too early. But there are exceptions. And as far as we know, the change does not occur. What do we do with that? Here's what I believe about that based on Scripture, the general tenor of Scripture. We parents, as we follow Christ have the opportunity to make a sacred deposit in the bank account of our children's lives. In terms of our own modeling, in terms of instruction from the word, we do everything we can to provide them every opportunity to have the divine deposit of the wisdom and the word of God. That we can control. I can determine whether I'm going to seek with God's help to be a model that points my children to Christ. And whether I will instruct them along the way. Here's what I can't control. I can make that deposit in their lives, but they have to draw from it. I guess it's a matter of free will, which seems to be something that is very precious to God. 
though very painful to him sometimes. But this we can know, that if we will be faithful to make that sacred deposit in the bank account of our children's lives, that God is personally invested and interested in reminding those children all the days of their lives of that deposit. And the love of God and the love of godly parents will resolutely follow that child all the days of his life. And eventually many will do as the prodigal son did. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion upon him, ran and embraced him and kissed him. The child will have come home. Let's pause and reflect prayerfully for a moment at what God has said to us through worship and the word this morning. First of all, are you home? Are you home yet? Are you home in the arms of the Father? Have you heard his call? Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. Come home by coming to Christ. Are you home? You can be today. The great longing of every heart is to be home. And home is really in the arms of Christ. Now, this morning, as, as, as a, an adult, who are the children in my life arenas before whom I can model the gospel? They may live under my roof. They may be the children of someone precious to me. They may be the children in my neighborhood, the children of my church. But would you ask the Father to bring their faces up to you and begin to show you how you can, in some small, consistent way, model the love of Christ before the children in your lives. Every parent can appreciate the support of a church family where their children are loved, paid attention to, and prayed for And we all need that. And this morning, if you are young and you are a child, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Begin now to seek after God, to engage your parents and respected adults in conversation about him, to open up your Bible and get to know him. In a few moments, we're going to have the offering That's the time when we turn those connection cards in. We give to God as an act of worship. As we prepare to do that, this is a moment when you can take that connection card. You can listen to the promptings of God and you can write down a request for prayer, a decision to receive Christ. Whatever it is that the Father is calling you to do next in a tangible way, do it. Under God, do it. Father, Use this moment of response in our lives to your activity in our midst, in worship and in your word today. May, by how we respond, we say yes to you. Help us to locate our lives near the streams of living water and to let our roots go down deep 
in your love. In Jesus' name.